continue now with our reading. You're going to find the reading on the screens in front of you as we haven't been able to bring the Bibles into the church yet, but they'll be back. The reading today is taken from Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 22. So Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to the heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Well, good morning. And again, a very warm welcome to HT. Can I just ask, it's no good asking for a show of hands of who's worshipping in this building for the first time, because we've been out of it for so long, we won't learn much for that. But if you're newly arrived in Cambridge, and this is your first time with the HT family, would you put a hand up? A few. Well, let's give them a very warm welcome. Would you do that? <laughs> We're really glad that you're with us. And um, as I said at the beginning, 
Uh, this is a, a first for us back in this building. It's the first time that I've preached in this formation. It's exciting. There are various bits yet to become operational in this church, and one of them is there's no clock anywhere for me to see. So expect to be here a very long time. <laughs> Let's pray that God would speak to us. Would you join me in praying? Father God, thank you for your presence with us. And we've come together not to gawk at the building, not to be wowed by all the things around us. We've come to seek you. We want an encounter with you today. We're hungry for you in our lives. And so we pray, Lord, that you bring your word alive. I pray, Lord, that you take what I've prepared and make it useful for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, being uh, the first time I've preached in this formation here, we're in for something special. We're in for one sermon with two titles. And I'm going to give you the first title right up front and the second title at the end. The first title is this. Let the King of Glory come in. Let the King of Glory come in. Sometimes I think we talk about famous last words. We're familiar with that concept. I, I've always thought it was pretty strange, actually, and rather unfair to put an overemphasis on people's last words. Because generally, one would imagine they're not altogether in good shape when they utter their last words. So why put too much emphasis on it? But we all have our favorites. Uh, Googling, I find out that the nation's favorite epitaph is Spike Milligan's epitaph for himself, which was to go on his gravestone I told you I was ill. <laughs> Oscar Wilde is said to have said, this wallpaper's dreadful. One of us will have to go. <laughs> Elizabeth I is recorded saying, all my possessions for a moment of time. And Churchill said, I'm ready for my maker. I'm ready to meet my maker. But whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me, is another matter. Well, as I say, I think last words are rather unfair uh, to pick on, but first words are pretty important too. The chances are, as I look around, if you uh, ring up your parents and ask them, what were my first words? I bet that a good proportion of your parents can remember your first words. Just this week, I was speaking to a parent uh, in this congregation who told me that during the week their one-and-a-half-year-old son had put together his first group of words. His son had sort of emptied part of the dishwasher and the father had said to the son, thank you, Nathaniel, to which the precocious child said, you're welcome, Daddy. <laughs> we dream of having sons like that. <coughs> Ollie. <laughs> so I've been giving a lot of thought. What should my first words be as Holy Trinity as a church sails off in this bright future that lies before us? 
And I've taken the first title of this sermon, Let the King of Glory In, from Psalm 24. And we could perhaps have the words up. One of the things we were worried about in the staff meeting during this week was we know people are church shopping and we know that you want to put your head around the corner and see what kind of church we are. And there are no Bibles here. And we thought, help, we don't want you to think that we're biblically illiterate. There we are. These words come from the Bible. <laughs> Psalm 24, verse 7. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who's the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. I wonder what those words, what picture forms in your mind as you read those words. For me, the initial picture certainly, I don't think it's wrong, is of battlements with huge gates. That's what first springs into my head. But it could equally well be the gates of the temple. And this morning, it could equally well be the huge door or doors of Holy Trinity Church. Or more personally, for every one of us, frankly, the door of our hearts. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and let the King of glory come in. And I want to make it really clear. This church belongs to Almighty God. He has every right to take possession of his church, to be king over us, his people. This is his house, we're his people. And it probably seems a very simple thing to say, and it is a very simple thing to say, and it probably should go with the territory, but it very often doesn't go with the territory. So I want there to be no confusion about it as this church reopens. Let the king of glory in. There's an old joke about someone who walks into a church for the first time and they ask the person standing at the back by the door, is this the church of God? And they're told, good heavens no, this is an Anglican church. Well, I want us to know they're not mutually exclusive. <laughs> they actually belong together and this is the house of God. And we want the Lord God to know, we want Almighty God to know and to say to him, you're welcome here, you're welcome here. You're always welcome here. In fact, one of my prayers very often as I come to this place, as I wait for a service to start, I sort of remind myself and speak it out to God. I say, you're welcome here to do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, to whoever you want, in any way you want. Amen. It's just a total sellout to God. And you know what will happen when we do this as God's people and God's family? There will be surprises. There will be adventures. There will be hope. There will be changed lives. There will be new purpose. There will be joy. There will be peace. There will be supernatural works of the Holy Spirit. 
There will be a love that causes people to say, look how those people love one another. There'll be a fountain of praise because in the presence of God, when the king of glory comes in, you can't help but praise. There'll be a reverence. There'll be a slight awe, if not fear. Because the anticipation and respect we have for the Holy Spirit causes us not just to enjoy the presence of God, but to tremble slightly. A previous vicar here, Charles Simeon, used to sign off his letters, rejoicing with trembling and trembling with rejoicing. And there'll be growth because who can resist wanting to join such a community as this, where the presence of God is? So we want to say, don't we, this morning, bring it on, open the gates, let the King of Glory in. Come in, King of Glory. But then you'll see, written in this psalm, along with the invitation to open the gates for the King of Glory, is a question. Who is the King of Glory? I can tell you his name. I can tell you his name. I can tell you exactly who he is. And I intend to do so often. Now, many of us, I hope, I'm imagining, many of us enjoy reading whodunits or going to see films which are effectively whodunits, detective stories. You never know when you're preaching to a Cambridge audience if you're one of a kind, you know. I look out, I have no way of knowing if you even know who Agatha Christie is <laughs> or if you've ever read a detective story at all. I'm feeling as if I might be the only one. Well, let me tell you what I've discovered. I, I, I didn't read English literature at university. Some of you probably are. I don't imagine that Agatha Christie would be on your reading list. But I discovered there are generally two types of whodunits. Type number one goes like this. You flog your way through the whole of a book or you're sitting there watching a play and at the very last minute, usually in the last couple of chapters, in the last few pages, you're introduced to a new figure that you've never seen before who turns out to be incredibly important because he or she is the murderer. But they arrive in the final few pages and they generally have a double identity. They're the butler who really is the illegitimate son of a squire's great uncle and he's exacting revenge. Or it's the policeman who actually has never been a policeman any more than I've been an astronaut, but he's wormed his way into this community so that he could conveniently kill a few people. And if you think that's a rather implausible plot, seems to work pretty well on the stage for a number of years. But a better kind of detective story goes like this. That right the way there, throughout the book, you've been introduced to the character, and if only you had had eyes to see, there were enough clues to see exactly where this person was heading. And at the denouement of the book, you say, oh, yes, I always thought there was something a bit odd about that person. Well. Who is the king of glory? You're not looking for the murderer. You're looking for the Messiah. You're looking for the Messiah. 
I've got a Bible up here. You might have a Bible on your phone. If you read the Bible, you will find out that actually it is one story of revelation from the beginning to the end of God revealing to us with clues and with uh, more than clues, with a person, the identity of the Messiah. And the identity won't surprise you. The identity is Jesus Christ. In the reading that we had from Acts, and if you got it on your smartphone, you could turn to it. In the reading that we had from Acts, you'll see in the punchline of Peter's address. He says, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, who you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Christ is the same word as Messiah. God has made this Jesus, who you crucified, both Lord, the King of glory, and Christ, the Messiah, verse 36. That's the verdict of Scripture. Here is the King of glory. And to underline that point, let me read you another uh, verse that records what was said early on in the book of Acts. Salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we can be saved. And that's the theme tune of this church. That is the gospel, the good news message. But I want to look more carefully with you about this this morning, because actually the identity of the King of Glory to many came as a total surprise, both in Jesus' day and in our day too. He is a most unlikely candidate for all sorts of reasons. In so many ways, Jesus didn't cut the kind of dash you might have expected a Messiah to cut. In fact, he cut no dash whatever. We really have no idea what he looked like. We can guess that he was dark-skinned, Middle Eastern-looking. We really rely on a prophecy from Isaiah where we're told in Isaiah 53, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. His provenance as they would say in the world of lost art treasures, was really rather obscure. He wasn't related to nobility. He wasn't in the least bit rich. He was born to poor parents in poverty, as a point of fact. The company that he kept gives little indication of his being a religious superpower in his own right. He ate with the outcasts. He spent time with those who were living wayward lifestyles very often. He enjoyed the company of people who were pretty dysfunctional. He wasn't shy about spending his time with people who were prostitutes or tax collectors. So that in fact, his choice of friends brought him into disrepute. If you tried to track down his formal education, you wouldn't find any. He didn't go to a rabbinic school. They existed in Jesus' time, but he never graduated. If you look for associations with a political party or with soldiers, you won't find any. Religious leaders sometimes did have big retinues of followers or the backing of an army, but Jesus didn't. So what I'm saying is, if you or I had walked past him on the street, you probably would have done just that. 
walked past him on the street. Superficially, at least. Until, until, until a number of things might have happened. Until he opened his mouth to speak and started to teach. Because we read in scriptures that whenever he started to teach, whether it was in a synagogue, whether it was on a hillside, whether it was in a valley, whenever he stood up to teach, people paid attention. In fact, it's recorded in the Gospels, they sort of nudged one another, and the murmur that went round the synagogue was, who is this? He doesn't teach like the scribes or the Pharisees. He teaches with authority, which when you think about it, is a bit of a dig at the scribes and the Pharisees. But they noticed, they noticed. I was thinking about this. Even if you're an optimist, I'm not insulting you, I promise. Even if you're an optimist, I very much doubt that many people will be reading anything that you write in your lifetime 250 years after you die. Sorry to insult you like that, let you down. Okay, you look as if you don't believe me. A thousand years after you die, I'm not sure people will be reading what you say. 2,000 years after you die, what do you think? I, I, I don't say put your hand up if you think people will be reading your works 2,000 years after you die. People are reading Jesus' words all around the world over 2,000 years after he died. People arriving in Cambridge this year to do nothing more than study Jesus' words for three years, and usually in Cambridge it extends for at least some time after that as well. People are examining every word that he said because it's so amazing and it has such truth in his words. Well, you'd expect that if he's the king of glory, but it's part of the evidence that he is the king of glory. If you and I had heard Jesus speaking in the flesh, we might well have sat up and listened. But it wasn't just that. It was the things that he did. At the beginning of this speech that Peter makes, he says in Acts 2, verse 22, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you know. Here's Peter in the market square talking to people, and he says, you remember Jesus. You remember the things he did. Do you remember that time that he healed the blind? Now, he did that a number of times in Scripture, sometimes in a really weird way. You know, scripture talks about him spitting on the ground and making some mud and then putting it on the person's eyes. Have you ever pictured that? How messy? It's not very sophisticated, is it? But if a blind person sees after doing that, I don't think you'd be complaining. Have you ever thought about what it was like to be there in a synagogue where the man with a withered arm walks to the front and Jesus says, stretch out your hand. I mean, I just can't even picture that. How does a man with a withered hand stretch out his hand? But somehow he does and it becomes whole. 
And you know, there are many, many things that Jesus did, which it would have been fun to have been there to see. Well, if not fun, at least intriguing. To have seen Lazarus, the dead man, come out of a tomb with a word. To have seen Jesus walking on water, that would have been interesting. To have been at the wedding when he, f he turns water into wine, that would have been fun. All of these things were things Jesus did that caught people's attention. I would suggest that if you go back to your college and you did any one of these things during your time in Cambridge, people would take a bit of notice of you. But we haven't even got to the big one. The big one at the center of Peter's speech is coming back from the dead. This man was handed over to you, says Peter, and with the help of wicked men, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross. I, I think, I've always thought, that wasn't very tactful. You know, just think about that. As he's talking to the Jews, he, he makes no effort to be tactful. This man was handed over to you, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. And again, verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of a fact. And then again, verse 36, let everyone be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, who you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And to use a phrase you've got to be careful with these days, the trump card in his pack, I think probably the ace in his pack is a safer uh, thing to say, is coming back to life. I remember hearing a scholar called John Stott. He was a Cambridge uh, graduate. He often used to worship, actually, in this church. He's dead now. He died a few years ago, not many years ago, uh, in his 90s. He often actually used to come back to this church uh, because he enjoyed it, and he used to bring his um, students up into the chancel area to see a plaque which is on the wall behind me, but we'll talk about that another day. I, I used to enjoy hearing John Stott um, speak. He was very, very bright. And one of the habits that he had, which I found just so impressive, was he used to invite questions from the congregation. And he would often take them in groups, like five or six or seven questions. And then he did what few people would do. He would gravitate to the hardest question. He'd say, well, the question I want to answer of those 10 is this one, because it's the hardest one. And such was his uh, understanding and knowledge. Uh, he always produced uh, spectacularly good answers. And I learned a kind of principle from that. If someone can answer the most difficult things, you will trust them with the easiest things. I think this is true right across all disciplines. If, if I knew that you were a brain surgeon, I would trust you to remove a splinter, because if you can do brain surgery, you probably can remove a splinter. If I knew that you were a pianist and you could play complicated Beethoven sonatas, I would probably trust you to play happy birthday at someone's birthday party, because if you can play Beethoven sonatas, happy birthday looks within your compass. If I knew you were a Formula One driver, I might probably trust you to drive me to the station. I thought, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> but you get the principle. 
looking at Jesus' life, looking at anybody's life, what's the, the hardest question I can think of asking them? I think it's this. What have you got to say in the face of death? What answer have you got for death? And Jesus' answer is, I will go through with it, and I will come back to life. Now, if you can tackle death convincingly, you've answered the big one. It, that's greater than walking on water. That's greater than turning water into wine. That's greater than healing a few people with a word. And that is precisely what Jesus did. The man giving this speech in the middle of, of a marketplace is precisely the man who just a few weeks before had turned to Jesus. And when Jesus had said to him, one day I'm going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to mock me, they're going to scourge me, I will be crucified, I will be buried, and three days later I, I will rise from the dead. And Peter took him aside and said, never, Lord, never. And Jesus took Peter aside and said, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking as God thinks. This is going to happen, Peter. And now, post the crucifixion, after the resurrection, Peter, who has eyeballed the risen Christ face to face, has to tell the world, he is absolutely convinced of it, this Jesus who you crucified has been risen from the dead. He's been raised from the dead. He's not dead anymore. Now, I know just as well as you know that that's incredibly rare. It was incredibly rare then. All the reasons you can think of against it, they thought of them then. But it couldn't and they wouldn't shut Peter up because he'd met the risen Christ. What are you banking on when you die? Where is your hope? My hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The hope of those who follow Christ is he's raised from the dead and he will raise us from the dead. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. There's one other thing that I think needs to happen if Jesus is going to get your attention and my attention. It's got to get personal. It's got to get personal. Jesus has got to call you by name. And when he calls you by name and gets your attention, you'll have to make a decision. It happens in the scriptures a number of times. He calls people by name. He says to them, follow me. Happens to all sorts of unexpected people. Happened to Peter when he was a fisherman. It happened to Matthew when he was a tax collector. It happened to Zacchaeus when he was up a tree. It could happen to you while you're in Cambridge. And this is my challenge for you. It's the same challenge that a friend of mine when I was at university put to me. I was not a Christian when I set off at university. It was in my third year at Exeter University that I met the risen Christ. I met him through the scriptures. 
a friend who was a Christian challenged me to read an account of Jesus' life for myself. And I never had done so. I would studied, like all of us have studied at school, religious studies, and I thought I had an impression of who Jesus was and what he'd be like. But my story is of having a friend who was a Christian who asked me, Rupert, have you ever read an account of Jesus' life yourself? And my answer at that point really was no, not really. And she challenged me like this. She said, I, I suggest that if you want to, you read John's gospel. Won't take you very long. And you ask God to reveal himself to you. And if he does, you do something about it. Now, I have no way of knowing amongst our congregation this morning how many of us will call ourselves Christians or how many of us are seekers. I am assuming, because you're here this morning, that you are seeker-friendly. Otherwise, I can't think why you're here. Well, maybe it's for the lunch, in which case you're very welcome. But I hope there's a bit more to it than that. And... At the back of the church, I have put some copies of John's Gospel, and I would love you to take one and to read and to make up your mind yourself. And it may be that Jesus will call you by name. But it's also possible there are some people here this morning, and you know. It's your experience already. Jesus has called you by name. He has made a connection with you, and at some point in your life, you might well have said to him, I want you to be my Lord. A Christian is someone who says that every day. I know that Jesus knows I want him to be my Lord today. It's not just way back when I was at university. And what we have to do is what had to happen at the end of this talk that Peter gives. He, he talks to them about Jesus, as we've seen. He tells them that Jesus died for them and rose again. And they say, what should we do? Which causes a preacher's dream. They say, what should we do? And he says, this is what you should do. You need to repent. Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now we don't generally use the word repent anymore, but I want to just explain what it means. It means turn around. It means start again. It means go in a different direction. And what Peter is saying is, you've been wandering in a direction away from God, and you need to turn around and face him and start again. That's what repent and be baptized means. And if it sounds old-fashioned, I'm sorry about that, but it's what everyone who follows Christ has to do, not just once in your life, but so often. I bet there's not a single one of us in this building who hasn't occasionally woken up and thought, I wish I'd never done that. Oh, I wish I could start with a clean slate. And the message of the gospel is God says you can. You can. You need to turn around, be washed, and start again. I haven't majored on it this morning. Peter doesn't seem to major on it in this particular speech, which is why I haven't majored on it this morning. But forgiveness is offered through Jesus' death on the cross. In fact, when I did read John's Gospel for the first time, that's what unglued me. When I got to the end, 
I thought to myself, Rupert, you don't have an adequate response to the cross. You don't have an adequate answer. When you stand before God and he says, what do you make of my son and his death upon the cross? What are you going to say, Rupert? And over the days and over the weeks, my conscience smote me, really. And the Holy Spirit convicted me, though I didn't recognize him at the time. And the day came when I just surrendered. I said, Lord, thank you for dying for me. And I want to set it out as clearly as I possibly can at the beginning of this time in Cambridge for many of you. And I want to set it out for us as a community of HT. Our obligation is to open the door of our hearts to God this morning. To lift up the gates of our heart and invite the King of Kings in. Jesus used that picture really in the book of Revelation. He said, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And I thought it would just be heartening for us in this building at this juncture in the life of Holy Trinity for as many of us as want to, to do that. To open our hearts to Jesus and just say, we're yours. And you might have done this a gazillion times, whatever a gazillion is. But you won't be doing something freaky. You'll be doing what a Christian does, saying, Lord, come into my heart and rule in my life. And so if you'd like to do that, I'm going to ask you to stand, and it might be for the first time, it might be for, for the umpteenth time. There's no compulsion to do this, but if you want to, uh, I want to ask you to stand, and I'm going to lead us in a prayer. So would you stand if you want to ask Jesus into your heart now, this morning? And let's uh, close our eyes so that we're not looking at other people, and I'll lead us in a prayer. Lord God, we've read in the scriptures that people have said before you over generations, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and let the king of glory come in. And we come before you in this place to say exactly the same. You said you stand at the door of our hearts knocking, and we say, come in, Lord Jesus. And we don't say this flippantly, we want to repent. We want to lay before you the things in our lives which we know are just wrong. The times when we've gone in the wrong direction. The times when we've lived as if you didn't exist. We say, forgive us. Thank you for dying for us and rising again for us. Come and be Lord of our lives and send your Holy Spirit that we might know you better and become like you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.